Tonight's reading is taken from Acts uh, chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So, keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God 
that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now, I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could to, could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. This is God's word. Well, good evening, my name's Matt. Uh, nice to see you. Welcome along. Let's pray. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, thank you that you lead your people. Thank you for Paul's testimony of your promises to keep him. And we pray as we look at your word this evening that you would encourage us and lead us through the storms of this world to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Now our question this evening is, should Christians expect to suffer? Should Christians expect suffering in this world? So you might be a Christian here this evening. Maybe you've recently become a Christian even. And you wonder, I wonder what life will be like as a Christian. So I've had conversations with a few who said, actually, when I became a Christian, actually, you know what, things got harder for me. Actually, I experienced many more storms of life than I had before that. And that was a big surprise to me. I hadn't expected 
that. Or you might be here with a Christian friend this evening and, and you're looking in on the Christian life that they live. And your question might be, well, does my friend live in a protected bubble? Should they expect to live in a protected bubble? If I became a Christian, would I live in a protected bubble? And so we come to this chapter of Acts 27 where it's clear that that is not normal Christian experience. Paul experiences all of the storms of normal life, literally a terrifying storm. Now, I have a huge amount of experience of being in the storm as I thought back over this. The closest I can think of is being on a hovercraft, age 13. We went across the channel on a school trip. We came back and the sea was up and it was it was very scary. We were in this sort of hovercraft. It was very claustrophobic, very sort of up and down, the sea all over the place. Scary, you know, quite scary for a 13-year-old. And the chicken nuggets I devoured just came up all over the place. And that was even more scary for everyone else. I don't, now, I don't have a huge amount of experience of storms, but I must say that the most terrifying book that I've read in the last year was a book that described a terrifying storm in 1979 in, in one of the famous yachting races, the Fastnet when the fleet of the fastnet was just torn away from the coast of England and Ireland and out into the Atlantic, and it was just destroyed. Fifteen people uh, died during that. It was a terrifying event. And the, the detailed accounts of the survivors of what happened out in the dark of the Atlantic for days as they were pounded by the sea, it was terrifying. It was gripping reading. And so here we have... A terrifying storm that, that, that those who had been through must have been able in their minds to relive forever. For all of their days, they must have looked back on this fortnight in their lives in this storm with all of the memories coming back to them. We know of some who were in the storm. We know that uh, Paul, the apostle, was, was there. Uh, Aristarchus is mentioned. We take it that Luke, writing this account, was an eyewitness that there he was on the ship with Paul during this storm. And they'd have seen the clouds racing over the horizon towards them with rain and wind, and the sea would have risen underneath them. We're told that for many days they saw neither the sun nor the stars. And you, you may think, well, that's just a couple of weeks in England. That's what it's like to live it. You just don't see the sun for weeks. And yet more than that, more than that in this storm, it wasn't just that. There were the mountainous swell of the waves shaking the ship. This little boat with 276 people on it at the mercy of the wind and the sea for two weeks. It must have been terrifying. They must have been kept awake at night by just the creaking of the timber as it threatened to just burst apart and they put ropes around the boat just to hold it together. But night after night, threatening to break apart, they would have heard the the howling of those in the hammocks next to them as every jolt made them think that this was it. I don't know what it does to you psychologically for two weeks to think that you are suspended between life and death and that any moment the little boat that you're on might fall apart and you fall down into the Mediterranean and into its depths. And so here we have it. It's all here in slow-mo, high-definition as Luke records it. In fact, in classical literature, there's nothing like it. Extraordinary account of a storm at sea. But the question, as I said, that comes out of it is, why? Why? 
Paul is on the way from Jerusalem to Rome. Why does Paul have to go through a storm to get there? Why does that happen? We've seen already in Acts that the risen good, that the good news of the risen Christ is unstoppable as it goes to the ends of the earth. God is sovereign. God's in charge. God is unstoppable. Why didn't he stop the storm? Why didn't he do that? Why did Paul have to go through it? And of course, if you've ever read Luke's first book, Luke's gospel, there's a storm in that. And yet Jesus Christ stands up in the middle of it and says, quiet, be still, and the storm stops. Why doesn't that happen here? Why does the storm go on for two weeks? And why come to think of it? Do Christians experience storms, suffering in their lives? Well, let's look at at least three things that the passage says into that as an answer. Paul experienced the storms because, first of all, he lived in a fallen world. He lived in a fallen world. Secondly, we'll see that there were people he needed to serve. And thirdly, that he followed a suffering saviour. But let's dive into that first one. He lived in a fallen world. So there they are, if you've lost your place, page 1124. Do open it up, page 1124, chapter 27. And there is this motley crew with Julius, who's from the Imperial Guard. That was like some sort of crack SAS team. This guy's in charge of the prisoners as they are being transported from Jerusalem up to stand trial before Caesar Nero. And so they sail up the top of Cyprus and then they dock there. And at that point, they transfer ships. And there are two things that lead initially to the disaster. And the first, the first is the choice of others. That's the first thing that leads Paul into this. It's the choice of others. So just have a look down at verse 8. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Sounds like a great place to be, doesn't it? You're in Fairhaven, sounds terrific. Why not stay there? Now, we're going to do something exciting. We're going to turn to the last page of your Bible, which you probably don't look at too much, and look at a map. So turn right to the back of it. And if you don't look at this page often, here it is. It's the final map, the final page of your Bible, and it's Paul's journey to Rome. And there is the map. Do you see where they've gone? They start in the bottom right in Jerusalem. They travel up the coast. They go over the top of Cyprus. They change boat. And then they head down to Crete. They're heading to Rome. It's a reasonable route to go. And they get to Fairhaven. You can see just near Lycia. But we're told that they're not quite sure about the port. And so they go on. They're going to make a break for it. Forty more miles they think they can do to get along to the next port near Phoenix. And you can see what happens in a minute in the rest of that arrow. You can see that they're going to head all the way across, be torn for two weeks, all the way across to Malta over a terrifying sea. So that's the journey. But do you see how it starts, verse 8 and verse 9? We're told, verse 9, that it's after the fast. That's the Day of Atonement. People say in that year, it was probably on October the 5th. I don't know how they can work those things out, but they're pretty confident. October the 5th was the Day of Atonement that year. And so it's getting towards the end of autumn. By November, people packed up sailing. You just don't sail in November in the Mediterranean. It's too dangerous. But they're in that window just at the end of that period. Should they make a break? Should they go 40 more miles 
just to get to a better harbour. They're in quite a safe one. Should they go 40 more miles? And Paul says, do you see? Paul says, don't do it. Verse 10. I can see our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo into our own lives as well. Now, Paul's not a mug. He's not a sailor, but he's not a mug. By this stage, he's probably done 11 voyages. He's probably travelled on ships around the Mediterranean. People calculate 3,500 miles, something like that. He knows what it's like to travel in safe periods of the year. And he knows what it would be like to travel at a dangerous time of the year. And so he puts his case. But there's a meeting. There's a meeting between Julius, the pilot, the Egyptian owner of this ship from Alexandria, maybe the, the, the grain magnet or whatever, and the majority. They have a little huddle at the front of the ship and they come back and they say to everyone, now guys, we've decided we're going to push on for the next 40 miles. And Paul goes, what are you doing? This is We're in a safe place. I don't think this is a wise decision. And yet, do you see, verse 12, he's in the hands of the majority. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on. It would have been reasonable to stay there, but they hoped to reach Phoenix and winter there. Do you see, that's the first thing. The choice of others, in part, is what leads Paul into this situation. But the second thing that leads them into this situation, in this fallen world, is the effect of nature. The effect of nature. So verse 13. They're just hugging the southern coast of the island and the wind is pushing them up and that's fine. But then the wind changes, verse 14. It comes from the north now and it drives them away from the island and out into the open sea. Nothing they can do. They're in the hands of nature. Now just note, this is just a normal wind. They know it as the northeaster. It's one that they've heard of. It's not a freak. It's just a normal wind that comes up at that time of year. In other words, this is what you get if you sail in October, late October, in the Med. That's just what happens. You get these sorts of winds. And it is that, again in part, that leads to verse 20 where they're at death's door, about to die. So do you see that? Why does Paul suffer? It's because he lives in a fallen world. He lives where other people make decisions, and it costs you. He lives where the gigantic forces of nature make it hard to survive in. He lives in that world. And we do too. He lives in a fallen world, and you and I live in that world too. And that is why as Christians, we're not immune to suffering. So you know what? Sometimes your boss will make a bad choice. And you will say, don't invest in that. That's not a good thing. And they'll have a huddle in the office and they'll come back and they'll say, we've decided to do this. And you'll say, no. And yet they will. And you will be in the hands of the choices of those above you. Experts who don't get it right will cost you your promotion chances and your reputation. Or the natural world that we live in will bring suffering too. So Christians are not immune to the earthquakes of Haiti or to the terrorist attacks of 9-11. They're caught up in it in just the same way. So we're not to think that we're, as Christians, on some sort of safe track 
Actually, suffering will come just because of the world that we live in. It'll come. And many of us would know that. And so I did this as I was thinking about this. I just, I just thought for a little about my, my family and closest friends. I just had to think for a little bit to see if this is true. And here's, here's what I noticed. I noticed that one of my relatives has, with cerebral palsy, been in a wheelchair all of her life. Uh, others have bipolar depression. Others have childlessness, have suffered a number of miscarriages, struggle in singleness. Uh, another, his brother died tragically. Another lost her sister at a young age. And here's the thing that struck me. Those are just the Christians within my family and closest friends. Those are just Christians who've suffered in that way. And perhaps most perplexing of all to me at the moment is my aunt, who uh, came back from the mission field very recently after years out there and came back hoping that this would be the time when finally she'd get to spend with her grandchildren. And then her speech started to go slurry. And a few months ago they diagnosed that she's got an inoperable brain tumour, which is invasive and probably going to kill her in the next few months. And, and that is perplexing. That is perplexing. This, this Christian, you see... God has not suspended the laws of nature as the gospel goes out for Christians. He didn't suspend the laws of just the normal storms of October in the Med for Paul as the gospel went out. Yeah, there are miracles. Yes, God can do that. But think of the missionaries around the world as they've taken the gospel out in Papua New Guinea, dying of malaria. The the laws of nature weren't suspended for that. They weren't suspended here. And that makes us long. It makes us long as Christians for the world that God will bring in, where there is no suffering anymore. So why does Paul suffer? Well, first of all, he suffers because he lives in a fallen world. Secondly, he suffers because there were people that he needed to serve. There were people that he needed to serve. So uh, look again at the passage and you see that Paul has made a choice. He's going up to Rome for the sake of the gospel and to serve others. And again, it is partly because of choice to serve others that Paul experiences suffering in his own life. I mean, he could have, could have stayed put. But because he knew God was calling him to serve others and go to Rome, he went. And it was that choice. It was the service of others that led to this. Now just pause. One of the things that Luke is, is doing in this passage is, is drawing upon a storm story that happened in the Old Testament. Some of you might remember or would know the story in the Old Testament of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet and he was called to go to Nineveh and to tell a people who were outside of the traditional bunch of God's people that God was going to judge but they needed to repent and know God's love and forgiveness. He was sent to do that. Except if you remember the story, and you may maybe read it. Jonah, what did he do? He went in exactly the opposite direction. And he ended up in a storm. You remember some of the features there in the same way as here. They end up throwing cargo uh, overboard. And it seems that Luke is drawing and, and expecting us to just compare these two stories. So just compare them for a minute. Jonah and Paul are both on trips to a people outside of God's traditional people. Jonah is unwilling. But Paul is willing. Jonah hides below deck. Paul helps on deck. Jonah wins no respect of the people. And yet by the end of this story, Paul has won the respect 
of those he's serving in the boat. And so do you see, Paul is in the midst of suffering, largely because of his choice to serve the Lord and people. But do you notice that when Paul stands up to speak, in contrast to Jonah, where all he speaks about is himself, Paul is not full of self-pity. He stands up and speaks. In fact, he's full of courage and calls them to trust in God. So verse 23. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. So Paul is not full of self-pity because he knows that he lives in the hand of God, that he's on a promise, that he's immortal until God chooses to take his life. He knows that he's in God's hand and he conveys that to others in the midst of this. So do you see in the rest of the passage the hands of God? An angel appears, for example. Or chapter uh, verse 26, we must run aground on some island. There are signs that God is at work. It, you know, if you look at that map, if they miss Malta, they just keep going. They keep going. I don't know where they're going to hit. Tunisia, but month, you know, weeks, they would have just kept going. We must run aground on some island, and they did. They hit Malta, the hand of God. Or just at the end, when they're about to be, um, the soldiers say, well, let's just kill all of the prisoners, verse 43. And yet, the hand of God. They're protected. Julius respects Paul and protects him as the hand of God. Again, is what we expect as we read through Acts. That God is at work in this. And Paul conveys that. So he says, verse 22, keep up your courage. Or you see his second speech in verse 33, when they're just on the edge of Malta. The, the, the soundings are getting better. They're hopeful they're going to hit land. And he stands up again. And he speaks courageously to 276 people who are all, we know from verse 42, some of them thinking they're ready to kill him. And yet he stands up and he gives thanks to God in front of these men for the food. And he prays. And do you notice as well Paul's practical advice? It's amazing what you learn of the Apostle Paul in the middle of this emergency, how practical he is. So he has the presence of mind to say, verse 34, guys, you've not eaten for 14 days because you've been so seasick, because you've been so exhausted in pulling ropes and trying to keep alive. Men, you're exhausted. And I can see, if you don't take on some food, when we hit the ground tomorrow and you have to swim from the wreck through the pounding surf to the shore. If you don't have some food inside of you, you're going to drown. And so I'm telling you, you've got to eat some food. So practical. So practical. In the midst of this emergency, he serves others. He looks to them. And I've got no doubt, don't you, as you look at that, I've got no doubt that that meal, that practical advice, probably saved the lives of many in that crew. That if they hadn't had a meal, they probably would have drowned as they hit this unexpected sandbar just off the edge of Malta and they had to swim for it. They have to grab stuff. Do you see Paul in the midst of this trial? He's suffering, but he's serving others. 
You can say some of us may find ourselves, especially at the moment, in the midst of suffering. Just the storms of life. And that may be in part because we've chosen to serve others. And if you're there, you know the temptation is always to turn inwards in suffering. Always tempting to do that. Instead of looking up and seeing God's hand, even in that. And then looking out and serving others. And Paul sees God's hand and then he sees that there are people that he needs to serve. Now just pause on that. If you read, if you read what people would say about how to live through suffering, many writers will observe that one of the things that can help us in the midst of suffering is to practically serve others, to look out for them. And I was thinking about this, and, and personally this is exactly what happened to me a, a little while ago when I was flagging in the, in the Christian faith a bit, and I've been through a bit of a low and uh, I can remember one week especially when I, I kind of said, to the Lord, I, don't, I just can't cope. I just feel low. I just don't think I can cope anymore. And then one sun, the Sunday at the end of that, in the morning, one person came up to me and they shared that they were low for exactly the same reason. That was in the morning. And I was saying to the Lord, Lord, this is not what I need. It's not what I need. I feel low enough already and you're bringing someone else into my life with the same sort of situation. The same day in the evening, a different person came up to me and said, can we have a chat? Can we have a chat about this? And they, I said, what's the, what's the situation? Exactly the same situation. I just feel low just about this and for this reason. And I just, I thought, Lord, this is not what I need. This is not what I need. But you know what? It was exactly what I needed. And actually, as I look back, it's a turning point. It was the Lord saying to me, Matt, in the stuff that you're going through, looking at and serving others is one of the ways that God gives us to grow and to trust him in the midst of this, to turn us from turning in on ourselves, to look up to God's hand and out to others. And so there are always people to serve, and even in the midst of a crisis, even in the midst of the storms of life. Maybe that's a bold prayer to pray. Lord, would you bring someone across my path? who I might serve in the midst of this. But others of us would be in a crisis at work. Maybe even one made by your boss. The expert who was meant to lead you through this and he makes a mess of it and now you're having to pick up the pieces. And you're sitting there on a team and I don't know what it looks like to do what Paul does in verse 35 when he gives thank and he tells them to eat, verse 34. I don't know what that looks like but it might be that you can be the practical person in the team who says, now guys, look, we've got this deadline to meet. Can I just suggest that I go and get takeaway? I bring it in, we do another half hour on this and then we all go home and get some sleep. Wow, that might be just the best thing that you could do in that situation for those on your team in the midst of crisis. As a Christian, practically serving the needs of others, trusting God's hand and serving those around you. Now finally, how did Paul know that he was in God's hands? It didn't look like it. And how can we know when it doesn't look like it? Well, let's come to the third thing. Someone had gone before him in this path. And so the third thing is, why did Paul suffer? It was because he followed a suffering saviour. There was someone who'd come this way before. 
And now this is really a point from just the structure of Acts and the book of Luke. Do you remember we've got these two books, one written by, uh, sorry, both written by Luke, one his gospel, and then this book of Acts. And it's instructive. If you, if you just match up the, the outlines of both books, you see an interesting thing. They're both journeys. The book of Luke is a, is a journey of Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. And on that journey, he goes through trials. And on that journey, he is beaten. On that journey, he's declared innocent. And then he dies and he rises again. Paul's journey. Paul's journey is from Jerusalem to Rome. And on that journey, he goes through trials, the same number of trials. He's declared innocent. He's beaten. And then you get to these chapters. And in a sense, this is Paul's death and his resurrection. Now, we know that he probably died eventually in Rome, but there's a paralleling between the structure of these chapters. So that Paul's death, in a sense, in verse 20, and his resurrection at the end of this, is because he goes the same way as his Saviour. Jesus Christ goes down into death and is raised. And if you follow the suffering Saviour, that will happen as well. That is the outline. That is the pattern of those who follow the gospel of death and resurrection. And so Christians, that is the life that we live, dying to self and yet being raised at the end. So if you'd be here and you're looking in on a friend who's a Christian, be no surprise as you look in to see something of that, them dying to life in this world, living in the fallen world, but living with hope, living with hope. And so how do we not end up? morose in that? How do we not end up just hangdog in suffering? Well, it's this. As you look at those structures together, as Paul is in the middle of his storm, what was he to remember about Jesus Christ, the master that he followed? Well, it was this. It was that Jesus Christ bore the big storm. Jesus Christ bore the biggest storm. And he was living, yes, through painful and terrifying storms. But the big storm had been worn, weathered by Jesus Christ. You see in Luke's first book, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus is in the garden. And the next morning he will face the wrath of God. And he cries out to his father, if there is any way that this can be turned aside, if there's any other way, and there is no answer. And Jesus Christ goes into the storm of God's wrath and takes it upon himself so that we won't have to. And so for Paul, as he lives through the storm of life, he could look back on Luke's first account and remember that Jesus Christ had borne the big storm and he was living through the aftermath. Jesus Christ went into the storm of God's wrath. If you like, his whole body creaked and burst apart on the cross. Jesus Christ was wrecked so that we could be healed so that we could land on the shore of heaven. And so can I say that if you're, if you're a Christian here this evening, because of Jesus Christ, you will never have to bear that big storm. You'll never have to bear the storm of God's wrath, of hell. Because Jesus Christ has borne that storm in your place. And you know, sometimes in suffering, you will just have to say to yourself something like this. Yes, life is not as I wish it was. Yes, I feel that I'm in the storm and I've been there for a while. 
But I am holding on to this truth. And maybe this is all you can hold on to at that moment. It's that Jesus Christ has borne the big storm. And I won't have to face it. And life could be better, but life could be much worse. And eternity could be much worse. But Jesus Christ has borne the big storm. And so I look to him. And on I trust. Let me finish with the story. It's Well, it's the song that we're going to sing at the end. Almost every time we sing this song, we remember the story that goes with it. If you've not heard it before, let me just tell you. It's an incredible story of a man called Horatio Spafford. It's one of the best names in uh, Christian circles, I think, after uh, Augustus Montague Toplady. But it's pretty close. But it's a great name, Horatio Spafford. Remember that name. Now, here's the story, if you don't know it, is that in 1871, this Christian man was living in Chicago and his young son died. In the same year, his business in Chicago was destroyed by the Chicago fire and he had nothing. And so to make a new start in 1873, he sent his family on ahead of him on a ship bound for Europe. But the ship never got there because it crashed into another boat and it sank storms of the Atlantic. His wife was on board, his four girls were on board, and his four girls died. His wife survived, and she sent a telegram when eventually she got to land saying, Saved alone. That was the telegram that he got, saved alone. Just her surviving. And when he was able to get a ship over to meet his wife, he records that it was almost as he passed the exact place where the ship went down that the words of this hymn came to him and he wrote them down. And do you see how he's, do you see what he's saying as you look at the words? He's saying, it's well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. What's he saying? What solace would he possibly able to hold on to in the midst of the storm of his life as it fell apart? It was that Jesus Christ had borne the big storm and he'd lead him through this. We'll take John Newton as we'll sing now. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Why does Paul suffer? Because he lives in a fallen world, as you and I do. He served people who needed serving, and he followed a suffering Savior. But the message is this, is that God leads his people, and the gospel advances even through storms. Let's pray. Father, very few of us would have experienced a storm like the storm that Paul experienced. And yet, we live in the same world that he lived in, where the choices of others, where the forces of the world that we live in, uh, buffet us. And so we look to you, 
and we look to the Saviour who suffered in the same world that we live in. And we ask that you would lead us on. We thank you that he bore the storm, went into the storm of your judgment and wrath, so that whatever we face in this life, we thank you that our eternity is secure because of him. And we ask that you would lead us forward, trusting in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.